0: I usually reply, it sure better be. It seems everyone out there wants to belong to a spirit filled church. But there are a whole lot of ideas out there about what a spirit filled church looks like. How do you know if your church is spirit filled? Is it because you have a special feeling when you walk in? That it's very quiet and the lights are turned down low and there are candles burning? Is that spirit filled? Some would say so. How about if the church is almost the polar opposite of that? What if there's excitement and loud energetic, uh, energetic music and people jumping up and down and rolling around and all kinds of ecstatic laughter? Is that spirit-filled? Does the Holy Spirit supply those characteristics? These are important questions. Just this week, I saw a television broadcast of a large church out to our west. I guess that could be anywhere, because when you're in Port St. Lucie, there's really nothing to the east except maybe Jensen Beach, I guess. Out to the west, in the Dallas area, there was a very popular pastor stirring up a whole lot of emotion. The people in the congregation were screaming. A few were even crying. Others were jumping up and down. There's so much emotion in theatrics, I had to ask myself, I wonder what kind of worship and praise music they have before that pastor takes the stage. And I'd call that a stage. What is it that gets all that emotion stirred up and and makes it able for them to go for a half hour or an hour? I'm sure if you would ask them, they would identify themselves as a spirit-filled church. There's another thing that I noticed during this broadcast. This will be very important as we advance through our text today, so deposit this in your short-term memory bank. During that half hour, not one time did that pastor ever reference the Word of God. So what does a Holy Spirit-filled church look like? What characteristics can we expect to see in a spiritual church? Scripture will answer that question for us today in Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. The first thing that we observe in this text is that a spiritual church consists of people who are holy. Previously in chapter 1, you might remember that this word holy means set apart to God. People in a spirit-filled church are going to have themselves set apart to God's service, and it will show. It first shows in their demeanor. Look at verse 12. So as those who've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Christians have been set apart by God and chosen by God to look like Jesus. From the very beginning, God created man in his image. That means that he created us to be a reflection of his character and his attributes. But that reflection got distorted when there was disobedience in the garden and there was a fall. Through salvation, God desires to restore that reflection. As part of his initiative, God gave us a perfect pattern of godly character to follow, in the sinless life of Jesus Christ. God's Son came and dwelt with man, so that when we place our faith in Christ, and after God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart, we can once again understand how we're supposed to live. The Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, Be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. In fact, the term Christian, which was first used in Syrian Antioch, actually means little christ so people indwelt by the holy spirit ought to progressively look like jesus one of our criteria listed in our passage today is compassion our god is a god of compassion the prophet micah asked of god who is a god like you You who pardon iniquity and pass over the rebellious act of the remnant of his people. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us, it says. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's Micah chapter 7. Compassion, as defined in the Bible, is foremost demonstrating, demonstrated by God forgiving our sins. This term for compassion in ancient Greek expressed sympathy and lament towards another, especially someone who was in misfortune or a man who had died. Christians do not want to see a man die in a state where he is not reconciled to God. So a spirit-filled church would certainly demonstrate compassion through enthusiastic evangelism. Evangelism is a concentrated effort to inform people they're sinners, separated from God. But the good news is that God sent his son to die for you and me. He rose from the grave after being crucified, proving he had defeated death and sin and all of its consequences to all who will believe. Spreading this message and encouraging others to believe it is called evangelism. You would also find the members of a spirit-filled church consistently demonstrating the next three characteristics in verse 12. Kindness, humility, and gentleness. People who display these tend to think of others first. Kindness is benevolence toward others and concern for their needs. Humility is refraining from the desire to be noticed above others. Gentleness is refraining from demanding your way. This term for gentleness, it's very fascinating. Theologian William Barclay commented that gentleness is an attempt to translate the original Greek term praetis, which has no precise English equivalent. Some versions translate it meekness, but meekness is not weakness. Barclay goes on to describe the word as strength under control. His illustration is that of a watchdog that is brave and undeterred by a threat, yet gentle and compassionate towards a family member. If you know anything about the breed of St. Bernard, this is one of their most redeeming qualities. You cannot provoke that gentle giant until you've threatened one of the family. Then you had better get out of the way. While reading another highly respected theologian, Thomas Constable, I found in his research that he cites that in non-biblical literature, Greeks used this term to describe a strong but well-broken horse under the control of a bridle. When Rita and I lived in Clearwater years ago, I took a part-time job driving horse and carriage down at the St. Petersburg Pier. I was assigned a, a horse named Bud. Bud was a Belgian draft. He was a magnificent animal had the yellow body and blonde legs, blonde tail, long blonde mane. It was an impressive sight to see walking down the roads. I acted as a taxi service to deliver people where they needed to go near the pier. But I can tell you one thing, if you wanted to push Bud, it wasn't happening. That horse was huge. You simply couldn't force him But if you asked him by gentle command, he would obediently submit and pull anything that you so desired, even the hardest of tasks. Bud would use his power and his might to serve you. So an awesome St. Bernard or a gigantic Belgian draft horse, they could overpower nearly anything that they wanted. All of that strength and power instead is surrendered surrendered to serve others. I can't think of a more perfect representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being God in the flesh, he could have demanded submission, but instead he willingly laid his life down for you and I. He hung on a cross. You may be the strongest in a group, the best looking, the smartest, maybe the wealthiest. When you allow the Holy Spirit to overcome your pride and use your qualities instead to benefit others, you're beginning to look like Jesus. That would be spirit-filled. The last term in this verse is patience or long-suffering. This is a quality of a person who can repeatedly endure a provocative offense without exerting their strength in response. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, When you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example To follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges rightly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. And live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Though repeatedly provoked, Jesus was long-suffering. Continuing in verse 13, the text describes Christians as bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. A Spirit-filled church is a church where members have a disposition, not of holding contempt, but of forgiving. Notice how the action of the verb is continuous for believers here. Forgiving each other as we are bearing with one another week to week and year to year. Living among sinful people requires that we repeatedly dismiss others' faults. It also requires that they repeatedly dismiss ours. And Jesus, it says that Jesus is our model of forgiving. How did he forgive us? The text says, Completely. That is why his forgiveness is listed in the past tense. The text says, he forgave. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He doesn't keep up digging up past sins to throw them in our face. There was a song once by a man named Garth Brooks, if you know who he was. And the song went, uh, they buried the hatchet They kept the handle sticking out. Sometimes you have to bury the handle too. Spirit-filled Christians don't hold grudges. That is not good for you. It's not good for the other person. Some people have also said to forgive means to forget. I don't entirely agree with that. There There are two different concepts I would add, forgiving is a matter of grace, while forgetting is a matter of trust. And though we're repeatedly commanded to forgive in the New Testament, we're only commanded to forget once, and that is to forget our past and leave them behind and live our lives for Christ. In actuality, having a good memory is repeatedly presented as a good attribute in Scripture, so don't get those concepts confused. But when God says that He doesn't remember our past sins, it doesn't mean that He had a bad memory or that He simply forgot. It means He doesn't recall them to convict His children again. So when people say, I want to forgive, but I can't forget, I say, You probably can't. But forgetting is not a prerequisite for forgiving. This is obvious, because if you simply forgot that someone offended you, you hadn't forgiven them at all. You'd simply had a lapse of memory. This verse reminds us that forgiving others instead is a reaction to the appreciation that we have for Jesus Christ, dying for our sins and forgiving us. That's why we forgive others not because we simply forgot. In verse 14, the Spirit-filled church is going to consist of members who exhibit love. It says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Unity and peace are consequences of love, And Scripture assures us that love never fails. You cannot have unity without it. Find a church that is suffering disunity and strife because there is a lack of love. This is why Paul commands us to put on love. Earlier in chapter 3, you might remember he said, to put aside immoral behavior. You remember that I had said that that phrase is used in stripping off dirty clothes. Put it away. This phrase now is exactly the opposite. Paul says, put on love. This phrase was used to describe putting on an outer garment. I have an illustration for you that most of us won't be able to relate to very well. If you were to go up north in the wintertime when a family goes to church, especially when it's cold out, they'll put on their undergarment. They'll put on their clothes. A woman will put on a beautiful dress or a, a man will put on his slacks, perhaps a tie and a coat. Before they go out into the snow, they'll put on an overcoat. That is their outer garment. Once they're all dressed up, they put these attributes on them that would represent kindness, humility, gentleness, They then put on this big overcoat of love. That's what wraps it all together. That's what keeps us Christ-like love. You have to have an overarching attitude of love. I was just talking to a gentleman this past week about this very thing. He said the world is so hard and unloving I told him, yeah. I also said that there's no place on the planet that exists that is as loving as a Bible-believing church, especially now as we head into the holidays or holy days leading up till Christmas. There's no better place to be than in the church of God. We have a wonderful spirit-filled church. Every morning when I get up and pray, I thank God for you. Our next exhortation in verse 16 is now increasingly reflective of corporate worship. Remember, er, remember earlier when I asked you to note that the speaker that I listened to previously this, in this week never mentioned Scripture. Well, verse 16 demands an entirely different approach. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The Word of Christ equally represents the words Christ spoke and Scripture itself. There's no difference between the two. John 1.1 says concerning Jesus, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. The Word is Jesus. People have told me in the past that they only give merit to the red letters. You know, the ones that Jesus spoke. It's actually silly. Why? Whenever Jesus was making a theological point, what did he do? He pointed everybody to Scripture. He pointed them to Moses and the prophets. So we are supposed to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Richly means fully and abundantly. In this principle we find the ultimate definition of spirit-filled Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 commands us to take with you the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of Christ is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's weapon. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, as said in Romans chapter 8. So you have the Spirit in you. But let me ask you this question. Have you equipped Him to be armed and dangerous? Have you committed enough Scripture and doctrine to memory to engage the world for Jesus Christ? If not, you're not spirit-filled. Walking around with the spirit inside you without memorizing the Word of God is like carrying a Desert Eagle 44 Magnum on your hip loaded with nothing but blanks. Why would you do that? You must fulfill yourself with the Word of God in order to be spirit-filled. You might lament that you haven't led anybody to Jesus Christ for 27 years. You may wonder why the Holy Spirit isn't active in your life. Maybe, maybe because you're not cooperating with Him. You do realize it is the Holy Spirit's sovereign ministry to travel about convicting sinners. It's our voluntary ministry to go about telling them the truth about Jesus being a witness to the Word of God. Romans chapter 10 says, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And we all know how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. God the Spirit will not typically use a person who's not in the Word. A Spirit-filled church is one that preaches the Word and equips the members to be loaded with Scripture Well, it encourages them to go out and draw the sword of the Spirit. How does this principle get integrated into corporate worship when we're together like we are now? Let's keep reading and we'll see. In verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we come together, the primary purpose of worship music, this says, is to teach and admonish one another. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and admonishing, for correcting and training in righteousness. This principle requires corporate music to be theologically rich, not a bunch of emotional fluff. You become spirit-filled through music when it encourages us to ponder the deep doctrines of the faith. You're spirit-filled when you're singing and reflecting on the truths of Jesus Christ, His deity, His resurrection. Scripture describes worship as an intelligent exercise. Listen to Romans 12, verse 2. It says, you don't become spirit-filled by vacating your mind, emptying your thoughts, and escaping reality into some transcendental meditation. That's not spirit-filled. That's called the 1960s. That was an utter disaster. That's not what spirit-filled looks like. Spirit-filled is an intellectual exercise with the Word of God. You also don't become spirit-filled by reciting 15 verses of the same empty phrase. God does not want vain repetition in prayer or song. God wants to be engaged intellectually. Jesus told his disciples, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, Jesus says in Matthew 6. You remember the old vinyl records, albums, and those record players? There was a needle in the player that would run in the groove, and the vibrations would make music. You'd have to handle those records real carefully, if you remember, because if you scratched them, that needle might get caught and jump backwards and replay what you had just already played. I remember when I was young that we had one of these record players, and you would open up... The top of the box. You'd put your record in and put the needle down and play it, and you'd go to another room to try and still listen to it. And when it would hit one of those scratches when you're playing that Elvis album, it'd jump back and repeat again over and over. A one for the money, a one for the money, a one for the money it'd drive you nuts, and you'd run back to that other room and say, get rid of that annoying, vain repetition. From what I've witnessed, some music today can look like that. Spirit-filled churches have music that engage the human heart through the intellectual mind, regardless of what year it was written. That doesn't really concern me a whole lot about the year. Nothing we sing today resembles songs that the apostles sang. Not in music-wise, anyhow. They didn't have an organ or a piano. We don't need to get too hung up on that type of instrumentation. Much of that's a matter of preference. Our text next mentions what we see as psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They simply illustrate a broad diversity of music. John MacArthur writes this in his study Bible. Psalms were the Old Testament psalms put to music, primarily. But the term was used also of vocal music in general. He says the early church sang the psalms. Hymns were perhaps songs of praise, distinguished from the psalms which exalted God, in that they focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual songs were probably songs of personal testimony expressing truths of the grace of the salvation in Christ. Unquote. Back to teaching and admonishing one another, we need to observe a couple things before we dismiss today. First off, the music here isn't first and primarily directed at God. Yeah, it is indirectly. Especially as the music causes us to live differently and live a life that is glorifying to God. But we're told in this text the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are directed to one another for the purpose of teaching and admonishing with the words of Scripture. Much like preaching, the worship of praise music, uh, the worship and praise music is a ministry of the Word. It is a ministry of teaching and edifying one another with scriptural principles. Members of the church are to have biblical principles deposited into their minds through rhythm, tune, and memorization. This was essential for the early church. They didn't have a printed Bible sitting at home. They'd go to church and hear it read, and they would have songs sang. They would commit them to memory so they could go home and reflect on scripture. It was an effective device to memorize. We still do it today. We don't only only do it for ourselves, we start with our children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Music is an excellent device to tell us the truths of scripture. With that said, corporate worship music is a teaching ministry of the word of God which I would propose requires that the person leading it is biblically qualified. It's so often that we try to find the person who's most talented. The person who has the most technique, sounds the best. A lot of times that ends up in music swaying to things that just sound good. That's not the primary purpose. We can't do that. Just because music sounds good doesn't mean that it's suitable for teaching and admonishing. Listen to it in other places. But when we're in corporate worship, we're teaching and admonishing through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So almost the entirety of our Sunday service, except for perhaps announcements and a few other things, our ministry of the Word of God. Why? So people can learn Scripture. So we'll be filled with the sword of the Spirit and the doctrines of Christ so that we can go out and do battle in the world. There's a parallel verse I'd like you to note. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 6. It sheds a whole lot of light on this principle. Ephesians is a sister letter to Colossians. It was written at the same time, by the same author, in the same prison, It was even delivered by the same person that delivered the Colossian letter. His name was Tychicus. So Colossians and Ephesians are sister letters that Paul wrote. In fact, we'll learn in chapter 4 that Tychicus, the delivery man, even dropped the copy of Ephesians off about 12 12 miles earlier in Laodicea, before he got to Colossae. So these letters are very closely related It says in chapter 6, verse 17, notice again this is doctrinal and intellectual. Paul writes, Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he continues to describe on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? He says, by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Speaking to one another, or Colossians reads, teaching and admonishing one another with doctrinally sound and scripturally instructive music is the biblical description of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the sword of the Spirit. If you're any way doubtful, would you at least agree with me that Jesus exemplified Being filled with the Spirit and walking with the Spirit during his ministry. What did that look like? Scripture gives us the answer. In the Gospel of Luke, immediately after being baptized in the Jordan River, Luke records in chapter 4 Jesus was being sent out to be tested by Satan. Luke writes. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he's baptized, and he was led around by the Spirit. It means Jesus walked in the Spirit. It says he was led around in the Spirit in the wilderness. So while being filled with and walking in the Holy Spirit, what did Jesus' behavior look like? Luke tells us. In chapter 4, verse 2, Luke writes, For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered to him and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Satan led him up then and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I'll give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Satan led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Satan tries to mix things up. Satan tells him, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard, or concerning you, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written in Scripture, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus demonstrated being Spirit-filled by his ability to answer with Scripture every time. Even when Satan is misquoting and misapplying Scripture in an effort to deceive him. Jesus knew his Bible. That's being Spirit-filled. A Spirit-filled church looks like its Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We demonstrate compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and love. A spirit-filled church is also fully committed to the Bible. It preaches the word from the pulpit. It teaches the word through song. And it unleashes the word into the community around it to win souls for Jesus Christ. So now if someone asks you if Port St. Lucie Bible Church is a spirit-filled church, you can tell them, You bet we are. Let's go out and get them. You pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Lord, we say that sometimes and our actions don't always line up with that. I know even for myself, Lord, that I do not spend as much time in your word as I should. Lord, it is where you've deposited all your wisdom. What you speak through is how the Spirit moves hearts. Lord, as you go and convict sinners, we are there to hand the sword of the Spirit, pierce them. Lord, we can't do that if we are not involved with your Scripture, if we're not meditating on your Scripture, if we're not singing the doctrines about your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, help us to put off what the world has us distracted by. Help us to want to honor you. Help us to want to glorify the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. So help us to set time aside, not only in corporate worship, but during the week, to be in your word, to be ready, to take that sword that is living and active. Lord, it is through this mechanism, through your word, that you change people's hearts and draw them in reconciliation to you. Lord, I pray that we would all here reflect your image, which we see in Jesus Christ. Lord, that's a tall order, but you've asked us to do it. So I pray that you'll strengthen us to do so with your Holy Spirit. Dear God, bless us as we leave today. Bless our meal. Bless our time in the afternoon with float-a-boat, Bring people to the marriage series tonight, Lord. Help us to minister to them to show compassion and love and kindness, gentleness, Lord, as we serve one another. Let the community see something different about this church that makes them want to join your body, Lord God, and make them want to be part of the body of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to honor you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.